0: Hey, before we get
1: going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, Mubi. If you have ever sat in front of your TV, me, I'm usually firing up my Apple TV, and I'm trying to find something to watch, and it's all algorithmically generated, and there's nothing I want to watch, Mubi does it a little differently. It's a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. They've got classics, documentaries. Each day, they introduce a new hand-picked gem, and you have one month to watch it. You can try MUBI free for 30 days at M-U-B-I dot com slash longform. That's MUBI dot com slash longform. They gave me an account. I've really been enjoying it. I think you will, too. So thanks to MUBI. Here's the show.
2: Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello.
1: A very special episode to you, coming to you from the uh, fantasy camp life of Max Zelinsky. <laughs> Max
3: has generated some Super Bowl week-specific
2: content yeah, Max, for you.
1: Max wanted to do a Super Bowl show, and he delivered.
2: We are on the news. We are on the news. Uh, you guys, you know that I grew up in Boston, uh, that I have historically rooted for the Patriots of
1: New England. If we looked on the new Apple podcast product, we could see everyone dropping <laughs> dropping off listening right there.
2: That's right. I know that the Patriots are contemptible. I root for them anyway. And uh, they're in the Super Bowl this week again. They're in the midst of uh, perhaps the greatest dynasty in the history of team sports. But it might be uh, fraying a bit. Busting up at the seams. Uh, and that is the topic of this week's show. Seth Wickersham, he's a writer for ESPN. He and Don Van Natta, who has been on the show before, uh, do these big investigations about the NFL. They get into, like, the owners' meetings and how these, like, franchises move between cities. They write about, like, teams in disarray, but they don't really write about the Patriots very much because the Patriots never leak any information. It's like Uh, the NSA
3: over there. It is.
2: And a couple of weeks ago, Seth came out with a story... uh, and the headline was something like, "Is this the beginning of the end?" And it was about how the three huge, larger-than-life personalities in the Patriots—the owner Bob Kraft, the head coach Bill Belichick, and the uh, quarterback Tom Brady—after 18 years together, are are maybe uh, are maybe done with each other. It's like uh, it's very like soap opera-ish.
1: Yeah, if, if you're not, if you're, I would say it's not even soap opera. It's opera-ish. <laughs> it's like the stakes are high. The uh, grudges are long standing and uh, in bad taste. There's like a rogue quasi con man involved. It's just, it's a great story at every level. Even for someone who has a history of generating controversial stories, I think this may be the most operatic, most controversial story he could possibly do. And one
2: of the things I really want to talk to him about was this was like the topic of discussion in all sports media for days on end. Yep. And it wasn't just talking about what was in his story. It was people debating the veracity
1: of the story. Debating who the sources for the story were. Yeah, so
2: it's almost all anonymous sources, and there's like, you know, a dozen people more in the organization. He has a line about how they, like, wear ties, sweatshirts, and helmets or something. So it's people from all across the organization. And, uh, and it was being disputed in national media all over the place, like, the actual work he was doing. So... It was fun to talk to him about how you do that work, and uh, and also just it was pretty fun to talk about the Patriots.
1: This is our uh, this is our most uh, AM drive time episode yet. I can I can verify Evan, that as a long time listener. Drive time. <laughs>
2: yeah, maybe I'll listen to this
1: one. Okay, <laughs> dialing on the AM band. Um, if you like to communicate in ways more modern than AM radio, consider an email newsletter. With a great service like MailChimp, you can't go wrong. They're easy to use, affordable, and really reliable. So I use them. You should too. Thanks to MailChimp.
0: And now
2: here's Max with Seth Wickersham. Go Pats. Hey, Seth Wickersham. Good to be here. What's up, man? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing great. I'll how's, tell you why. How's Patriots
3: Nation.
1: I mean, yeah. Well, I'll tell you
2: why I'm doing so good. Uh, my New England Patriots are in the Super Bowl.
3: Totally anticlimactic. There, nobody saw that one coming. <laughs> I I thought they were going to lose to Jacksonville. I was nervous. Yeah, but you know, it's just hard to play that team and that quarterback for 60 minutes. I mean, it's just you know to play that team, you have to have constant pressure on Brady you have to have a quarterback who can read the entire field, and there are just so few teams that have both.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It did did seem like that was the best that Blake Bortles could
3: ever play that first half. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think he did peak right there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want
2: to um, – I promised myself that I would not spend too much time just, like, celebrating the Patriots, but I do want to talk to you about this story that you wrote about Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft, which went about – as, like viral as I can remember, uh, like a sp- in-depth sports long-form article going in a really long time.
3: Does
2: that sound right to you?
3: Well, the numbers would back you up, but I, you know, yeah. Honestly, what were like, the numbers? Do you guys talk about um, that? It, you know, it was more than twice the one that Don and I did on Spygate to Flakegate. It was more than three times. The Wright Thompson on Tiger Woods. And, you know, that's not how we measure things, right. necessarily. But, you know, people spent time on that story. They read it. You know, the engagement was terrific. And, you know, that day, I was just busy doing the car wash, as they say, <laughs> at ESPN. And um, Wait, what's the car wash? You know, it's just you're doing every single show you could possibly do. And my Twitter app just would not work, like, because I was getting so many mentions. It just, the entire thing shut down. And My phone wasn't working, so I deleted it off my phone.
2: You actually broke the internet.
3: So I don't know if it went viral, honestly, because I I couldn't follow it in, in that form, at least. But it was, I didn't quite see it happening, you know, taking off like that. I knew that in the football world, it would get a lot of attention. I didn't quite see it breaking the boundaries of that as it did. But, you know, anytime you can do that, it's super cool.
2: Did other people at ESPN know that it would? Like when you're sitting on a story like that the day before or the week before, do people start kind of putting things in motion because they know what a big story it's going to be. Does that happen?
3: Yeah. So what happens is that they, with that story, there was no pressure on me to get it done. And if I even got it, you know, it was a difficult story to report. As you know, the NFL and especially the Patriots, it's just like a code of silence. It is so difficult to get inside this stuff. And that's what I pride myself on doing is taking readers as close as I can to, you know, how decisions are made and what goes on. And, you know, I knew that story was brewing. I knew it going back to like September, August, August, that there was tensions. How'd you know? Uh, someone who knows the dynamic very well in the building told me that it was getting bad, especially with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. So I just spent a lot of time going to Foxborough. Um, it's relatively close to where I live, so I could drive up there for early breakfast at this diner. And It was almost like having an affair. You know, <laughs> I'd meet people at hotels. I met people at TGI Fridays, 15 miles away from the stadium. I met people at diners. Uh, one interview I did in a running parked car when it was really cold out and it was like six degrees for 90 minutes.
2: I have so many questions, Seth. Uh, (laughs) I have so many questions. But let me
3: start here. Why do those people talk to you? Um, With this one, I think that I just came from a position of strength. I just knew what was going on and um, I had talked to enough people who knew what was going on and because of that, people that I had known for a long time and even knew people were kind of willing to open up to me because everybody in the building knew that it had been a year unlike any other and they knew why and you know i think there's a sense that this thing is coming to its end so i think that people are maybe a little bit more willing to talk and you know they talk to other people too i don't think that you know nobody quite got the comprehensive piece but there were other pieces up there that hinted at what was going on
2: mm-hmm. but i mean is it your sense that it's just like a snowball effect like, one person tells another person that, hey, I talked to that Seth guy from ESPN, like, you should go talk to him too? Or does someone say to you, like, you should really talk to Frank in strength and conditioning because he's got a lot to say on this topic?
3: I don't know that because I think they all, I don't think anybody's walking around bragging that they spoke to me for this story. <laughs> but, I mean, but that's, <laughs> one,
2: that's one of the things that that was so confusing to me. Reading it is like, it sounded like you talked to lots of people. Uh-huh, I did. What What's the number of people? Do you know? It was more than a dozen. More than I don't than know a the
3: dozen. exact figure, but it was more than a dozen. And it was people who, you know, there was that Dion Sanders line. I wish I had thought of it when I was doing all the press for this and, you know, everyone asked me that question. But Dion Sanders once was talking about his sources. He was like, well, my sources wear ties and sweatpants and helmets. <laughs> and so that was the scope. But there's not
2: that many people who work for an NFL organization. So like more than a dozen is a pretty good it's a pretty good number. It's a pretty good like percentage. And how do you get them? How does that happen? How does the volume happen? Like does it start with one person?
3: Sure, but you know it started with a couple people that I've known for years, but I think that you know again there's many different ways to get people to open up and you know, explain all of them. To me. Okay, all of them, man. <laughs> you know, you can write an email pitching a story to somebody and the email will sell itself and they might say yes and give you access even though they've never met you. And I'll give you an example like Wright Thompson. We did the Michael Jordan story. That was essentially how he did it. Mm-hmm. He had never met Michael Jordan. He never met Michael Jordan's people. He just was on top of the fact that Jordan was going to be turning 50 and it was going to be a thing faster than anybody. And because of that, and because of the way that he wrote the email and talked about the story that he wanted to write, he got all this access. And then because Wright's a good journalist and a person you like having around, he was able to get more access after that, you know, the ancillary access, as we say. So that's one way. Another way is by force. (laughs) And it's not physical force, but it is force of information. And... I've done that my entire career. I've especially done that on the stories that I've written with Don Van Natta, where you know you come heavy, and yeah. what does
2: that mean? You mean like I know this yeah. and I know
3: this, and if you don't talk, no, it's you don't you don't threaten anybody ever. I mean, you look, I I am eternally grateful for anybody who talks to me for these stories, even if I learn something from them or I don't. But I always am nice about how I ask. Mm-hmm. You know, I always I think that's just important. You know. Um, and I'm humbled by what I don't know about these situations. And so you can present an outline of, hey, you know, I know these seven things that are going on and your name came up in this. I want to make sure that if your name, name comes up, it's accurate, whatever, you know, stuff like that, I think, are ways. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily with this, you know, this story is a little bit different, but like, you know, what I was looking for was everyone's perspective as best I could get it. You know, I think that just because people in the building feel that Tom Brady is acting a little bit more entitled than he was in years past or, you know, Robert Kraft isn't letting Bill make all the personnel decisions like he was in years past. You know, I think that my goal with that story is to present everybody's point of view to the point where I think that they feel their say was in there, you you know, and doing that is... It's just it's important to me. The more nuanced, the better. Like whenever I have a piece of information that I bring to somebody, I always say, like, I just want to know if there's more context. Like what more should I know about this? Is this accurate? But help me
2: understand still how this organization that is famously tight lipped, like I find it hard to believe that everything has been copacetic for this seventeen year run that this group has had, but it doesn't get out. Like this stuff hasn't gotten out.
3: Well, I think winning masks it. I think that at times you have media there who are pliant, you know, to use a TB12 term. <laughs> Not to no no TB12 pun intended, but you know. And I think that rough spots have come up in the past. Like I remember the Dion Branch situation that flared up a little bit. There was some weirdness around Brady's contract mm-hmm. in 2010, 2011, something around that time, but you know, I think that it speaks to how tough this year has been internally. Do you think people are freaked out or
2: angry? Who? Whoever talked to you. Like, Uh, the motivation for people to talk to you, I understand that on some level, once people feel like lots of other people are talking to you, they want their perspectives known. But still, it seems like they've gone against some core tenet of the place on some level.
3: Well, everybody talks to somebody, even the Patriots. mm -hmm. And it's a rule of the NFL is that, yes, there is this code of silence, but there is a way through it. And <laughs> um, I know that it's hard to believe that this, you know, another, a, lot of the, a lot of the coaches around the NFL call Belichick the Kremlin. And um, I know a lot of people believe that the Kremlin operation, you know, <laughs> is so buttoned up. But again, it's been a hard year and, yeah. you know, people know it. And again, it was hinted at a lot of the local people did know about it. You know, I don't know if they knew the full depth or they knew everything but they knew and I mean there was a Boston Globe story about Alex Guerrero being banned from a lot of the building Tom Juno and I reported in our story that there was a collision coming with Belichick and Alex Guerrero and then the Boston Globe story came out maybe a month later or so but you know I, I don't always ask people like why they talk <laughs> you know if they say yes I just sort of uh, I ride that wave as long as I can.
2: Do you think that in this story people regretted talking to you?
3: Nope. Not at all. Why do you say that? I know. Can we keep walking through the, the
2: process of how reporting on something like this works? So you have a source and you're developing these sources. I mean, you've written about the NFL for years with Don. You've written your own stories. They're often this kind of piece It's sort of like TikTok or going through kind of like emotional turmoil in the league that we don't often see. So there's like a story about the hangover from the Super Bowl for the Seahawks that you wrote. Uh, and you guys have done a lot of work around the owner's negotiations and how the franchises moved or didn't move. So you must have sources all over the league, I assume, who are checking in with you all the time and you're checking in with. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you have one of these in New England or a couple in New England. And someone gets in touch with you in August and is like, something's going on. Doesn't
3: feel quite right. No, it's more like it's an evolving conversation. <laughs> You know, and I think that, like, look, there's turmoil everywhere. That's not what makes it interesting. The question is, when something big happens, does it lead back to that? Mm-hmm. So the impetus for the Seahawks story was that it broke that Sherman was up for a trade. Like, it made no sense. Again, why would you trade someone who is this great player coming off a fantastic season? And, you know, my repertorial hunches said that it went back to the Super Bowl. Um, And, you know, obviously he had spoken out about that since then. And, you know, those scars don't heal. You Mm -hmm. know, you have such a small window in the NFL. And so that was kind of like how that worked. And the league stuff that Don and I do, we're really fortunate in the sense that we have different sources. And so we can draw from a lot of different areas to try to piece together what happened in these very secretive and confidential meetings. And um, we're very careful about what we do. Like, I'll tell you... When Don and I did the story on the Raiders move to Vegas that came out in uh, maybe April of last year, there was a moment in the story in a a meeting where Don had a piece of reporting that was really fascinating. And I couldn't get anybody to confirm it. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, we felt like that we couldn't put it in. And um, maybe like two weeks after that story came out, I talked to a source who had found out that that piece of reporting was actually true. And so, you know, we try to be as careful as we can and cautious as we can, you know, in terms of what we put in, but the reporting is just part of the process and it's part of a writing. Pro- it's almost like similar to the writing process in a sense where you never try to have just one conversation with somebody. You have ongoing ones mm-hmm. and that way you sort of strip the emotion from things and what you end up writing is about as like bare bones as possible.
2: Help me understand what you mean by strip the emotion, because it feels to me like so much of these stories are you guys recreating and excavating the emotions that lead to these like headlines on a ticker.
3: Well, I think that like there's times where someone might be mad at somebody and, you know, motherfuck them or whatever it is. And, you know, then they'll calm down a little bit and you can get, you know, the story or, you know, you can get behind it a little bit. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the sense, you know, because everyone says, well, you know people who talk to you, they have agendas. And I'm sure they do. Maybe their agenda is they like to be part of the process. Some of their agenda is they like me, or they like Don, or they like Tom. You Know. I don't know, because I never really ask, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's like one of those things you'd ever want to, like, interrupt a pitcher when he's pitching a no-hitter.
2: <laughs> so, I mean, is that how you felt when you were talking to these people within the Patriots organization? Yeah. Like, you couldn't believe what, that you were getting what you were getting, and you just didn't want to, like, screw it up?
3: Well, of course, but also, like, I was careful and cautious, you know. Like I said, th- there was never an expectation, hey, you, that this is the deadline for that story. The story was done when it was done, and my editors deemed that it was something that they were comfortable running. And then going back to your original question about, like, how it went viral and the car wash, I mean, what they do is once they know, you know, a story's going to run on a certain date, you know, they'll marshal everyone behind it, and they'll send out a memo to people on TV and radio, whatever, with a story synopsis and that memo actually got leaked for this story. I don't know if you happened to be online that night, but the night before the story came out, that memo got out and it went to um, a guy who runs like a Patriots or a Boston media sports site, kind of a Patriots fan and you know, somebody who critiques media a lot and um, he tweeted the memo <laughs> and it, so it kind of blew up, but in a weird way it ended up, you know, wetting the appetite serving as kind of a, a preview for the story
2: and, and they just keep going through this process so yeah. you're
3: like you're you're engaging in these ongoing
2: conversations you don't have a deadline you're talking to your editor about it Do your editors know who these sources are uh sometimes 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 and when do you start feeling like okay i've, I've stripped enough of the emotion out of these conversations the agendas are either clear or have fallen by the wayside when do you start feeling like Okay, this is clearly a story now. Like, w- 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 how does it turn?
3: Well, next? I think when you have a situation like the Garoppolo trade or the Guerrero being banned from the building, clearly there's things going on, and there's something underneath all that. You know, mm-hmm. you only see the, you know, you get a glimpse of this public discord, but you don't know that that's actually the culmination of something rather than the beginning of it. And so, you know, again, it's just going through it again. You know, the, th- the question I kept asking people involved with this story, sources with the Patriots. Um, And close to people with the Patriots about the stories. Is is it still going? You know, has anything happened? Did they get together and sort it out? And every time it was no, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And in fact, they were going to meet Kraft, Brady and Belichick were going to meet in December to try to have a clear the air meeting and they didn't. So, you know, that's how I knew. Having essentially checked in on this story since September, that's the entire NFL season, I I felt pretty good about it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you try and talk to the three of them? Of course. What what were their responses? Nobody would talk on the record. Mm -hmm. But um, part of the fun process is, you know, reaching out to the NFL. And again, that's another process is like, you know, this is what my reporting shows. This is what I'm working on. And I'd like to verify for accuracy, for clarity. Is there any context? You know, what am I missing? That part of the process is fun.
2: What's the mode of communication for most of these interviews? Like, are you doing them in person? Are
3: you like texting? It's like Twitter DMs. How does this work? No, I hate Twitter DM. (laughs) I just try to do things in person as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that's how you end up in like
2: running cars in a crazy cold stretch? Yes. Does it seem like um, these people when they're talking to you, does it seem like they're having fun?
3: I don't know. I think there's a part of it that's engaging to them. It's part of it that's you know, maybe a little therapeutic. But, you know, again, I think that when I was in college, I interned at the Washington Post. And so uh, that was a fantastic internship and learning experience. And every week they had intern lunches. And so the big lunches you, you got ready for were Ben Bradley and Bob Woodward. And, you know, when Bob Woodward was there, he just, he wanted to help you solve reporting problems. He didn't want to really go over Watergate again you know whatever it was he wanted to hear what reporting problems people had and how he might be able to help you f- fix them and it was a terrific crash course on reporting and learning and you know you realize that even with him he still has to go knock on doors mm-hmm. and um so much of reporting is just work and persistence and being annoying but being endearing <laughs> and so once you're in front of somebody everybody's a different mechanism for getting access to people just Mm -hmm. like everybody has a different mechanism for picking up someone at a bar, but the successful people generally are good listeners and are endearing and persistent. Is
2: your reporting persona similar to like who you are in the rest of your life? I don't
3: don't know. That's a great question. Um, probably not. I, I don't, if my wife has a bad day at work, I'll let her talk about it as much as she wants, but I won't probe too much. (laughs) you know, if I'm getting the vibe that she doesn't really want to talk about it anymore, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of times she does not find me very endearing (laughs) (laughs) and quite annoying, actually. That skill, like being able to be endearing while
2: pressing and probing, is that, do you think that's something that you've learned or something that you sort of always could do?
3: I think that it came more naturally to me than it does some people. But I think that it's something you're always getting better at. And I think that, Asking short follow-up questions is just so important. Why was that? You know, what once people get going, telling a story, whatever it is, they've opened the door for you. Mm-hmm. And so you almost any question is within bounds after that. And I remember um, in um, 06, I think, I interviewed Albert Haynesworth, this football player for the Tennessee Titans, who had been suspended for most of the year because he ripped off a player's helmet and stomped on the guy's head in the middle of a game, and twice. And um, so he was suspended, and he was going to see a therapist to try to deal with his anger, but his anger is a virtue on the football field. So he was kind of trying to figure out how to sort out these emotions, and sometimes I I write out questions, or I write out talking points or key moments I want to hit, but I really planned out an interview with him, and we were at the theater at his house at maybe 2 o'clock in the morning, and he was taking me through exactly what was going through his head when he went to essentially a blind rage and stomped this guy's face, and I got him to the moment where his foot was raised over the guy's head before he had stomped down the first time. And I hit pause right there and I said, well, what was going through your mind? And it was one of the questions I'm most sort of proud of and a moment that I was proud of because it got a great answer. But again, because he was taking me through his emotions, that question was in bounds. Whereas if I had just started with that, mm-hmm. it would have been a completely different answer.
2: Were there things about this Patriot story that surprised you? Like, were there moments like that where... where...
3: Because, I you know, I know these guys. I've known them for a long time. You know, I've known... I was the first person to write a big magazine story on Tom Brady in 2001. We were both about the same age. Um, I was about a year out of college, so was he. And, you know, I've written a lot about Bill Belichick. Um I know people on that team very, very well and people who have been on that team. And so I just... I felt confident writing about it, and nothing seemed weird because it's amazing they've held it together this long it really is and you you know i i made that point in the story and a lot of people it kind of went past a lot of people but again it's just these are really extreme highly competitive personalities and you know people were surprised that brady would notice that belichick never names him patriot of the week and i was like why (laughs) Why would that surprise you? Michael Jordan would sift through USA Today and find anything he could for motivation. If you read the TB12 method, his book, now it's a fitness book and a health guide, but it's revealing in a lot of ways. And I mean, you look at that, you realize that guy never forgets a slight, ever. And so, you know, again, I think you're looking just to present these people as like three-dimensional as you possibly can Mm. and get at the great aspects and sort of the dark elements of greatness. Do you like Brady? Yeah. I think he's a good guy. I do. I'm not sure that I'm on his Christmas list at the moment. (laughs) But, you know, he's somebody I've known for a long time and I think that he has tried to do, you know, the right thing throughout his career. As he's aged, I think that the volleying between insecurity and cockiness probably is a little bit more extreme, which is interesting, but also perfectly reasonable, because that's how I think a lot of great people operate. I think that those urges get worse as you get older, not better. <laughs> you know, I wrote about John Elway. I spent a lot of time with him. I mean, what drives him gets worse as he gets older. It doesn't get cured by winning Super Bowls. It, it, instead, it you know, the scars are even just that much deeper. So, you know, I think with someone like Tom, I, I'm impressed with, how can you not just be impressed with how he has managed to overcome a lot in his entire career. His entire body has transformed. You know, he looks like a different person. Um, his throwing motion is different. I mean, he is a perfectionist to the extreme. And so I find that part admirable. And, you know, and, and a lot of people think he's like a really good guy who has a hard time telling his trainer no.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Have you spent
3: time with Guerrero, his trainer? Um, not a lot, but I've definitely met him and conversed with him. What do you think of him? I think that he means well. But, you know, I don't know if I have anything against his methodology, but I think that in the building they feel like that it's in competition with what the Patriots trainers are trying to do. Mm -hmm. And because of that, players don't know where to go. And, you know, you have this weird situation where Kraft, you know, keeps TB12 on as a consultant. So the owner is invested in a training outfit that's in competition with his own team. A very odd situation there. And, um, you know, I read the TB12 method for the story that I did with Tom Juneau many times and he read it too. And, you know, there's nothing in there that is unhealthy. I think that what it promises to do is can raise some question marks, mm-hmm. you know, drinking so much water, you'll never get sunburned or, <laughs> right. you know, devoting your body to eating this way and to stretching this way. And, you know, absolving yourself of injury, because that's Mm -hmm. what it promises to do. It says you can't blame the sport anymore for being injured. And that's a really extreme... That might be the most radical thing ever stated about the sport of football, is you can't blame the sport of football anymore if you get injured.
2: That almost sounds like snake oil to me.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's been referenced. Yeah. And what about Belichick? What's Belichick really like? He's a difficult personality. I think that he's singularly driven... I think he knows the score every time he walks out on the field, exactly where he ranks on the all-time list. I think that he cares an amazing amount about football history and his place in it. And, you know, he's a competitive, competitive person. And the little the scars that he has from being passed over for head coaching opportunities or what happened in Cleveland and, you know, having to wait five years essentially for another chance, I mean, those are real. Mm-hmm. And... This person who knows him pretty well once said, you know, Bill doesn't hold grudges, he holds death. Because he was like, with a grudge, you have a chance to reconcile. With death, there is no chance. That sounds sunny. (laughs) His nickname was Gloom with the Giants and Doom. So (laughs) I didn't know it was both, but apparently it's both. You hear these stories about
2: him sometimes that he's like actually like a pretty good hang.
3: Well, yeah, he's clever. I mean, he's a very sarcastic guy. I mean, I've witnessed his humor and it's, you know, he can be biting and funny. I mean, everybody you know, everybody has multiple selves. And, um, you know, he did this documentary with NFL Network where they spent a year with him, and I think it was the 2009 season. And, you know, it was a fascinating window into him, and, you know, you see him dressed up like a pirate on, on Halloween. But, you know, one of the things that really stood out for me was how he spoke to the team. I mean, that is a confident guy who speaks to the team. And not every coach is like that. It was the season that they had gone for it on fourth and two against the Indianapolis Colts and didn't make it. And that decision was just, you know, it blew up this huge controversial decision was it the right call was it the wrong call. They ended up losing the game and Belichick was talking to the team that week and he said, you can say a lot of things about me as a head coach, but one thing I'm not as scared. Hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to say and a good way to help the team turn the page because so many coaches are scared. I mean, you saw right. the way the Jaguars coached the fourth quarter. There was a team that was a – they could not get that game over fast enough. You know, they <laughs> knew that they were not scoring a single other point. And he is not a scared coach.
2: It's so interesting to me. I mean, I just with both of them, y- you gravitate towards – when just when describing them and talking about them, you gravitate towards their kind of inner motivations and their inner lives. And it seems to me like part of this work that you're trying to do is to uncover some of that in this arena where it feels like these guys take incredible lengths to keep that private and kind of even like weirdly separate from themselves at how it feels to me from the outside. Why do you think that's what you like wake up every morning wanting to do?
3: I think you just want to, you want to write about something real. You know, th- I hate stories that are the tension of the story is talk radio perception versus the reality that I see when I'm with somebody. I can't stand those stories because to me, you're just, you're writing about the ether versus a real person. Mm-hmm. And that's not a real tension to me. The inner tensions are the best tensions, you know, and uh, you can't get to them with everybody, but you try. And I mean, that was my Seahawk story was essentially about how people cope with failure. right? And you had... Wilson and Pete Carroll on one side who are extreme optimists, you know, it was almost like challenge, like how fast can you flush pain? And you have Sherman where it's a little bit harder. Maybe you see that methodology and you don't believe it. Mm -hmm. Or you, you know, he gets his edge by remembering those moments, not by forgetting them, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And it was just this, you know, historic play that the world saw. And again, those scars don't heal easily.
2: So the thing I wanted to ask you about was those couple of days after the story was published where it really was, you couldn't look anywhere in the sports world without seeing people discussing that story. And a huge part of that conversation was about, A, the veracity of your reporting. Yep. In a really public way, like not in an insider media way, like that story reached great heights and that was what people... That was a big part of that conversation was just how truthful it was. And then also, maybe a little bit more insider stuff, but insider stuff that I pay attention to, like people actively speculating on who your sources were.
3: Yeah, and I wish people wouldn't do that, but they do, and it's part of the game and, you know.
2: How, but how does it feel to have not just the thing you've produced but your actual work, like you, Seth, becoming uh-huh. the story and all these people debating, like... Uh, Me, yeah, well, you I, and hell again, kind of how good you are at your job. Well, let me, uh, yeah.
3: I'll, well, I got here's some of the the mail that I got from it.
2: Yeah, I should say. Seth these just are pulled just pulled
3: out his phone. I thought like you yeah. just
2: like got some great tip. That's these why are just random
3: photo. people. I've never heard of these people just sending me emails. Shouldn't have done it, buddy. Um, how are yeah. you going to post a trash article like that? You suck at life for that article. Um, let's see here. You completely made up everything about this organization just because the Patriots make you mad. Your interview was a joke. Fake news. Douche. Could story. I think you meant to say cool story. <laughs> Lies. Fucking ass clown. This was a nice one. Eat a fat dick. Might have to blotch out some of these. Bitch. Um, you're a virus. I got death threats. You know, somebody posted my number online, so I was getting emails about that. You know, I was getting text messages and phone calls from people. Um, What is that like? Not fun, but... I guess I wasn't paying that close of attention to it, because again, I, I just sort of disconnected a little bit. I did a lot of interviews for it, so I, I heard, and you know, I, I did a lot of radio interviews in Boston for it, and so obviously, those hosts are asking me hard questions. But I knew that what I wrote was true. And so, I've been through this before. You know, when Van Nade and I did our Spygate to Deflategate story in 2015, it was a, kind of the same thing. I mean, it really, people were really coming after us, and that story held up and i knew what had gone on in the building uh, with the patriots this year and um i might have worked my ass off and got only 1% of it you know but i can't go door to door to everybody with a 617 area code and try to convince them you know at the end of the day there's going to be people who don't believe the story but that's okay because i know that i know what i wrote and i know what was told to me
2: and what about the uh people trying to guess your sources
3: um they're always wrong I they think the can't hard thing. Always is, be wrong. Yeah, they usually are wrong. The hard thing is when they there was a, a guy named Michael Lombardi who I've known for years, and he's a friend of Belichick's. And people were openly speculating that he was one of them, and I mean that hurt him because he wasn't, and you know he's not in the building. You know these are my. He's people, in the media now. Yeah, I mean my people were. You know I needed people who had direct knowledge of things, and I think that was bothersome because. Mm-hmm. I think Barstool wrote a story about him kind of calling him a rat, and that's not, you know, I felt bad for him. Mm -hmm.
2: What do you think the effect of your story was in the building and on the team?
3: Um, I'm sure the principals in this story weren't thrilled at some things. I think there's another stool of people that are like, we've been dealing with this all year, who cares? It doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, we're still doing our jobs, as we say. You know, people have their eyes open. I mean, they know... They may not know every single detail about every single person's day, but they generally know the vibe in a building and what's going on. And NFL players can be a lot savvier than we often give them credit for. So the principals had to deal with it. I'm not sure the team had to deal with it that much.
2: In what sense can NFL players be savvier than we give them credit for?
3: Well, they lie all the time to us. (laughs) I mean, that was one of the funny things to me. is just that, like, you know, they serve up bullshit in the locker room or in their postgame conferences all the time. So on one hand, a fan can't, you know, if they know that their favorite players are up there lying all the time, they have to know that there's a real reality about how they feel about things, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know. And, you know, I know that there's, you know, anonymous sources are obviously under fire and people should be skeptical with anonymous sources. And we are and, you know, readers should be too. But, you know, again, there's a code of silence and, you know, it's just essential to get at what's going on. You never want to rely on one or even two. You know, you want to rely on multiple people to the point where the 10% of what you use from all these conversations matches up and aligns.
2: What was the response? I mean, you said you'd heard from some of your sources and no one regretted talking to you. Mm -hmm. Have you heard from Belichick or Brady or or Kraft?
3: Not directly, but again, you know, a lot of those conversations I keep to myself, but I, you know, I feel good about the story and, you know, it'll, it'll age well. I don't know when The definitive book will be written about the Patriots, but I have a feeling that when the chapter is written about this season, it's going to be a really good one once people are a little bit more liberated to talk.
2: You and Don have written tons of stories on the NFL. Mm -hmm. And do these things have a cumulative effect for you and you guys as a team? Like, does having a bombshell story like this with lots of anonymous sources? make it more likely that anonymous sources will come to you the next time or less likely?
3: Uh, More likely. With us, it's definitely opened. You know, our Rolodexes have expanded. And, um, you know, I think that there's a frustration, whether it be owners or the league office, that people are on TV and they don't know what they're talking about. And they don't know the dynamics. And we know enough of the dynamics to have a conversation. And I think that that helps. We know the people. We know the cabinet members. We know the org charts. So we can speak with a level of insight about things to the point where sometimes it'll feel like going out with your work friends for happy hour, you know, when everyone's talking about office gossip or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, I think that, like, that's what we strive to do. And so I think in that regard, our Rolodexes have broadened because clearly we do have some insight into the dynamics and i think that when that happens the dominoes fall.
2: You said um you guys pr- provide an alternative to people saying false stuff on tv that makes sense to me like you can uh sort of spend 3 months reporting this story and work with these sources and get removed from the emotion of it. Uh, many of the people who are saying things on tv are employed by the same company that you're employed by, right? Like Where does this work that you do fit in the kind of constellation of ESPN?
3: I'm not sure I'm the best equipped to answer it, but I think that what I would hope is that it's a level of quality that fans can appreciate. I mean, that's the best we can do. I mean, we always want to write stories, not just reports. You know, I could have easily written the Patriots thing as a thousand words and had it feel like a newser, but I wanted to actually try to tell a story that got into these, people and looked at them as characters and we strive to do that with all of our stories obviously Jerry Jones and Goodell end up being reoccurring characters (laughs) but um, we want them to have as best you can that cinematic aspect that fictional aspect in terms of like how stories are told trying to use quotes very um, rarely and use anecdotes more so I'd hope that those stories serve as a level of quality for people and you know, give fans and our own people insight into what goes on and helps them speak more authoritatively of it.
2: I talked about this with Don when I had him on the show years ago, and uh, I'm interested in what you think too, but there's a nice update to the story, which is Rick Carlisle, NBA head coach, just criticized ESPN for spending too much time talking about LeVar Ball. And the criticism was that ESPN was was being a bad partner to the NBA. And there's a business relationship between the NBA and... The ESPN, and then ESPN is also in this position of covering the NBA. I know, I know there's no way that you would ever say that, like, your coverage is influenced by that, but I do wonder whether it's ever a tension that you feel.
3: Um, I guess that to a certain extent, I think that with the Spygate to Deflategate story, we felt it, but it was actually, you know, we, we worried, but it, it wasn't, nothing ever came to fruition. And, I mean, Don's done this for a long time and won a lot of Pulitzers and been a great investigative reporter for years. And, you know, he's never he came to ESPN concerned about that and has never had his stories compromised by Mm -hmm. any of that stuff. And, you know, John Skipper, who was our president, would always say, I'm the only one with the conflict of interest. You do your job. Mm -hmm. And that's how it worked. We pursued stories. And I'm not sure that, like, you know the stories that Don and I do about the NFL. I'm not sure that gets under their skin that much, honestly. Like, I think that like there's things in it they don't like, but I think generally speaking, they understand that we're trying to make the best effort we can to. There's definitely been anecdotes. You don't think it bothers um, Roger Goodell when you guys write these stories? Well, I think so, but I think that like we're also really trying to capture accurately what goes on, mm-hmm. and so I think that there's an appreciation that we're trying to do it, even if like they don't like how that section was presented or they don't agree with this conclusion that somebody drew or whatever it was, it's not like we're looking for some sort of stamp of approval, but I think that we're trying to just be as accurate as we possibly can, and I think that people in the NFL understand that, and I think they respect that.
2: ESPN has had a a tough stretch. it has been a lot of layoffs. The subscriber numbers are down. Like, cord cutting has really hurt the business, and there are lots of long explainers about the ESPN business model that we don't necessarily have to get into now, but I know that The layoffs have been significant in the last year and that has an impact on morale and how people feel about the health of the place and i wonder whether that's manifested at all for you as like do you worry that that firewall is like permeable in some way like you can set your values at the highest possible place when people are just backing trucks and money up to your door every day and i I wonder how espn's conflicts of interest are going to Evolve as the margins get tighter?
3: Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, those are things that are way above my pay grade. But again, we're just doing these stories. You know, they're just the appetite for them internally is strong. Mm -hmm. And so it has been a hard year. There's no question. I mean, that was, you know, we had layoffs, we had a lot of bad news, (laughs) and we had a lot of good things that happened that nobody paid attention to. And then it culminated, obviously, with Skipper resigning, and that was a really difficult thing. He's someone I've known for a long time, and he was in charge of the magazine when I was first hired in 2000. And he used to host weekly basketball games over lunch at, uh, you know, here in the city. And it was just a—he's a rare and very special guy. And you know, it, it was a hard year. And you know, it's hard seeing friends, you know, lose their jobs. You never get used to that, and you never forget it. And I don't know, nothing lasts forever. We've seen a lot of changes in a lot of great journalism companies, but I hope that we continue to do this work and the appetite for it is there, and I'm confident that it is, and we're trying to do the very best we can to deliver readers the very best stories we can while this lasts. Do you know why Skipper left? I believe his statement. Um, I don't have any details other than that, but I believe his statement.
2: What What is it like to have the level of like interest and curiosity about ESPN and Bristol that there is in the media world like you know your job is to go and find stories and get at the like kind of underbelly of this mammoth institution that would very much like to not reveal its underbelly and you yourself work for a mammoth institution that also would like very much not reveal its underbelly um, and people do so all the time
3: What what is that like? It's funny, and it, it, it's very odd. Um, Yeah, I mean, we have more people that cover us than cover the Chiefs, you know? <laughs> like, it, and it is a surprising aspect, and um, you'll see people profiled in Richard Deich's column or in Sports Business Journal, and, you know, I'll see them at the Bristol cafeteria, you know, wiping mustard off of their shirt or whatever. And so, it is a funny dynamic. But again, you know, look, you call yourself the worldwide leader, You're going to be under a microscope, and that's okay. I mean, that's the point. And we're all trying to do the very best that we can and make our fans feel rewarded for their paying to be a part of, uh, you know, to to watch games or to come to the website or to buy the magazine or whatever it is that we're trying to do. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, like, in the fall, there was a lot of news, you know, about our social media policy and (laughs) a lot of things that was... You know, it is bizarre and you do notice how there's an entire conversation going on in the ether that Doesn't bear much resemblance to what's going on internally, but it's there and you have to deal with it
2: Do you extend like the same? Graciousness that you feel from the NFL to the people who are reporting on ESPN Are you kind of like oh, those guys are just doing their job or is it like it's pretty annoying that you guys are reporting about like My, my friend's salary.
3: Yeah they, sources give it to us sometimes you know, they'll say, well, I've heard that, you know, I saw this report on ESPN, late, you know. So I think that, like, there's a friendly give and take. But sources do ask about, you know, how things are going or, you know, I saw this report. Is this true? And it is one of those things, you know, ESPN is so big and it's – I often feel and I'm often happy to feel ill-equipped to not be able to answer people's questions because I honestly don't know. You know, I'm a writer and, you know, I have a job to do and I do the best I can and, you know, I hear – some funny little elements of office gossip or whatever it is, but I'm removed from the things that readers care about. I'm very far removed. And that's a good thing for the health of our company. Speaking of the
2: health of things, do you think football's in trouble?
3: I don't know. But I think that there are some big problems. I think that, obviously, the youth participation rates are a problem. But I think that even so even if you just had Florida, you know, Louisiana, Texas, and California playing football, that's about half the country anyway. (laughs) Um, I think that the NCAA model is an issue. And so that threatens the college game. But it's interesting because the college ratings are generally up, whereas NFL ratings are down. Now, they're down relative. There are ways to dispute the numbers. And a lot of those ways are very legitimate because people are watching less TV. You know, you used to have an NFL game on or you had whatever was on your other 100 cable channels and now you literally have any movie ever made at any time at your disposal or the NFL game and so I think that when it comes to the NFL though I think that the biggest problem is just that fans don't think the game is fun. I have a buddy who says replay hurts the NFL more than head injuries and the anthem stuff combined and the NFL crossed a line where the people in charge ceased to be one of the fans, and they became the people in the executive suites in suits and ties, and I think that the game reflects that, and I think that there's a part of it that, you know, you have these incredible athletes spend a lot of time working on their craft, and it just can feel very stiff at times, and I think that's a big problem.
2: Are your sources, these people you're talking to all the time, are they aware of that?
3: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're nervous? Um, Yeah. I mean... It's, I, I you feel this a little bit on uh, a much smaller scale at ESPN, but there's times you just feel under siege, you know, and I think that people in the NFL feel that way. Mm-hmm. They can feel it on their teams. You know, if the team isn't doing well, they can feel under siege with their fan base and from the local reporters. They can feel under siege from the league office. They can feel under siege in terms of broader dynamics that are going on. They definitely feel it. There's no question about that. And I think that was a lot of what made... The anthem and President Trump's comments and Roger Goodell's contract such a thing mm-hmm. such a moment this year I think because it tapped into a nervousness that was already there among owners Super Bowl Sunday do you have a prediction <laughs> it's either going to be like a 14 to 17 Eagles win or like 40 to 7 Patriots win so I have no clue which one of those it's going to be I, I, like I said it's really hard hang with the Patriots for 60 minutes as we've learned (laughs) all right
2: so say it's a 40 to 7 Patriots win okay or say they're down the whole game and somehow Brady comes back Uh and wins it at the end and the confetti is coming down and uh Brady's got the like Super Bowl champion t-shirt over his jersey Uh and with the TB12
3: logo on it (laughs) right
2: (laughs) And the camera zooms in, and we get the moment where he and Belichick hug and do that thing where they like hold each other behind the head, you know, and look into their eyes and say whatever they're going to say. What are you going to be thinking in that moment?
3: I'll be thinking they're scheduled to have a meeting, you know, the three heads of state there to clear the air when the season ends. And so my thought is always going to be, well, what's going to go on in that meeting?
2: Do you feel like that moment? of elation uh, would be genuine
3: oh i'm sure it would and then i'm also sure that other feelings are genuine too i mean i honestly think that they're all going to be back next year i just think that there's more of a chance that they wouldn't than in previous years but i honestly do think that they'll all be back well if they don't
2: all come back seth i'm blaming you
3: maybe they'll just come back to spite me
2: (laughs) seth man thank you for doing this thank you man Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Mubi. And thanks very much to Seth Wickersham. He is uh, in Minneapolis right now covering the Super Bowl. I'm sure the Patriots have been very happy talking to him. Hey, before we go, I just want to tell you one more time about our friends at MUBI. It's a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. No more being overwhelmed when you turn on your uh, streaming service. Every day, MUBI introduces a new hand-picked gem and you have a month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a thought-provoking documentary, or a groundbreaking masterpiece, their lineup is always handpicked by experts actual human beings. Try it free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash long form. That's M-U-B-I.com slash long See you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it.